Section 18 of the Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. Section 18. St. John Chrysostom by John Malone. St. John Chrysostom, A.D. 347-407. A strong soldier of the cross, and from good fighting stock, was that John of Antioch, who among the people that were first of the earth to bear the name of Christian, was called Chrysostom, mouth of gold. His father Secundus, who died about the time of Chrysostom's birth, was a military commander in Syria under Constantine and Constantius II. John was born at Antioch, A.D. 347, when the Eastern Empire and the city of Constantine were new. His young mother, Arethusa, a Christian, then but twenty years of age, devoted herself to widowhood and the education of her son in the city of his birth. The youth's early years were passed under her careful guidance, and at the age of twenty he entered on the study of oratory and philosophy under the celebrated Libanius. In 369 he became a baptized Christian and reader in the house of Miletius the bishop. The unhappy reigns of Valens and Valentinian, when neo-paganism in the west and in the Gothic settlement in the east began to work the empire's fall, saw John devoted to an ascetic life after the example of the monks and hermits who sheltered in the mountains about the gay and queenly city of his birth his mother's grief and loneliness brought him back from his cave to an energetic career as an outspoken preacher of god's word and the eternal prophet of good stout-hearted workaday well-doing he made himself dear to the people of antioch for he had eloquence such as had been unknown to greeks since demosthenes and he shrank not from labor and self-denial. So they called him Golden Mouth, as the Indians called their tried men straight tongues. On the death of Nectarius, the successor of Gregory of Nazianzenus, Theophilus of Alexandria, and Arcadius the emperor made him Metropolitan of Constantinople, A.D. 397. All before this time he was laying about him with good ear-smiting Greek advice and luxury of which there was abundance both in palace and in hovel, and his elevation to an imperial neighborhood did not stay him. He cleared Byzantium of pagan shows, gathered the relics of the martyrs, and sent missionaries to preach to the Goths in their own speech. Not many years of this kind of leadership were allowed him. Arcadius, well disposed but indolent, was under the rule of a willful woman, and when Chrysostom turned his swayful voice against her pet vanities, the vexed Eudoxia intrigued his disposition. In 403 John went to exile in Bithynia with the words, The Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away, upon his lips. A great earthquake so frightened the imperial city and family that with one outcry they called Chrysostom back. When the fear of the infirm earth had worn away, Eudoxia remembered her enmity and took it back to nurse. So one day, when John had said in his sword-like invective that Herodias was raging again, she showed less mercy than the Baptists had obtained. 
for under the plea that his restoration had been unwarranted the metropolitan was sent to a forced wandering in the wilds of outer provinces from which there returned to him only the venerated relics of a martyr driven from spot to spot sometimes in chains always under the prod of guarding spears one day of september four o seven he dragged himself to the tomb of the martyr basiliscus at comana in pontus and laid his soul in the hands of god thirty years afterward theodosius the younger brought the body back to constantinople in person chrysostom was small and spare his life of rigorous fasting and toil made him still more slight and hollow-cheeked but it is told that there was always a blaze of fire in the deep-set eyes the work of chrysostom was chiefly ecclesiastical oratory in which no one of his own or later times surpassed him first of the great christian preachers after the church came from the caves he was not less able as a teacher his letters full of sweetness and firm honesty his poetry delicate and musical and his philosophic essays rich with the clear-cut jewels of dialectics are worthy of his station in the first order of the doctors of the church the real wealth is from within from the treatise to prove that no one can harm the man who does not injure himself what i undertake is to prove only make no commotion that no one of those who are wronged is wronged by another but experiences this injury at his own hands but in order to make my argument plainer let us first of all inquire what injustice is and of what kind of things the material of it is wont to be composed also what human virtue is and what it is which ruins it and further what it is which seems to ruin it but really does not for instance for i must complete my argument by means of examples each thing is subject to one evil which ruins it iron to rust wool to moth flocks of sheep to wolves the virtue of wine is injured when it ferments and turns sour of honey when it loses its natural sweetness and is reduced to a bitter juice ears of corn are ruined by mildew and drought the fruit leaves and branches of vines by the mischievous host of locusts other trees by the caterpillar and irrational creatures by diseases of various kinds and not to lengthen the list by going through all possible examples our own flesh is subject to fevers and palsies and a crowd of other maladies as then each one of these things is liable to that which ruins its virtue let us now consider what it is which injures the human race and what it is which ruins the virtue of a human being most men think that there are diverse things which have this effect for i must mention the erroneous opinions on the subject and after confuting them proceed to exhibit that which really does ruin our virtue and to demonstrate clearly that no one could inflict this injury or bring this ruin upon us unless we betrayed ourselves the multitude then having erroneous opinions imagine that there are many different things which ruin our virtue some say it is poverty others bodily disease others loss of property others calumny others death and they are perpetually bewailing and lamenting these things and whilst they are commiserating the sufferers and shedding tears they excitedly exclaim to one another what a calamity has befallen such and such a man 
he has been deprived of all his fortune at a blow of another again one will say such and such a man has been attacked by severe sickness and is despaired of by the physicians in attendance some bewail and lament the inmates of the prison some those who have been expelled from their country and transported to the land of exile others those who have been deprived of their freedom others those who have been seized and made captives by enemies others those who have been drowned or burnt or buried by the fall of a house but no one mourns those who are living in wickedness on the contrary which is worse than all they often congratulate them a practice which is the cause of all manner of evils come then only as i exhorted you at the outset do not make a commotion let me prove that none of the things which have been mentioned injure the man who lives soberly nor can ruin his virtue for tell me if a man has lost all either at the hands of calumniators or of robbers or has been stripped of his goods by knavish servants what harm has the loss done to the virtue of the man but if it seems well let me rather indicate in the first place what is the virtue of a man beginning by dealing with the subject in the case of existences of another kind so as to make it more intelligible and plain to the majority of readers what then is the virtue of a horse is it to have a bridle studded with gold and girth to match and a band of silken threads to fasten the housing and clothes wrought in diverse colors and gold tissue and headgear studded with jewels and locks of hair plaited with gold cord or is it to be swift and strong in its legs and even in its paces and to have hoofs suitable to a well-bred horse and courage fitted for long journeys and warfare and to be able to behave with calmness in the battlefield and if a rout takes place to save its rider is it not manifest that these are the things which constitute the virtue of the horse not the others again what should you say was the virtue of asses and mules is it not the power of carrying burdens with contentment and accomplishing journeys with ease and having hoofs like rock shall we say that their outside trappings contribute anything to their own proper virtue by no means and what kind of mind shall we admire one which abounds in leaves and branches or one which is laden with fruit of what kind of virtue do we predicate of an olive is it to have large boughs and great luxuriance of leaves or to exhibit an abundance of its proper fruit dispersed over all parts of the tree well let us act in the same way in the case of human beings also let us determine what is the virtue of man and let us regard that alone as an injury which is destructive to it what then is the virtue of man not riches that thou shouldst fear poverty nor health of body that thou shouldst dread sickness nor the opinion of the public that thou shouldst view an evil reputation with alarm nor life simply for its own sake that death should be terrible to thee nor liberty that thou shouldst avoid servitude but carefulness in holding true doctrine in rectitude of life of these things not even the devil himself will be able to rob a man if he who possesses them guards them with the needful carefulness and that most malicious and ferocious demon is aware of this thus in no case will any one be able to injure a man who does not choose to injure himself 
but if a man is not willing to be temperate and to aid himself from his own resources no one will ever be able to profit him therefore also that wonderful story of the holy scriptures as in some lofty large and broad picture has portrayed the lives of the men of old time extending the narrative from adam to the coming of christ and it exhibits to you both those who are vanquished and those who are crowned with victory in the contest in order that it may instruct you by means of all examples that no one will be able to injure one who is not injured by himself even if all the world were to kindle a fierce war against him for it is not stress of circumstances nor variation of seasons nor insults of men in power nor intrigues besetting thee like snowstorms nor a crowd of calamities nor a promiscuous collection of all the ills to which mankind is subject which can disturb even slightly the man who is brave and temperate and watchful just as on the contrary the indolent and supine man who is his own betrayer cannot be made better even with the aid of innumerable ministrations on encouragement during adversity from the letters to olympias to my lady the most reverend and divinely favored deaconess olympias i john bishop send greeting in the lord come thou let me relieve the wound of thy despondency and to disperse the thoughts which gather this cloud of care around thee for what is it which upsets thy mind and why art thou sorrowful and dejected it is because of the fierce black storm which has overtaken the church enveloping all things in darkness as of a night without a moon and is growing to a head every day travelling to bring forth disastrous shipwrecks and increasing the ruin of the world i know all this as well as you none shall gainsay it and if you like i will form an image of the things now taking place so as to present the tragedy yet more distinctly to thee we behold the sea upheaved from the very lowest depths some sailors floating dead upon the waves others engulfed by them the planks of the ships breaking up the sails torn to tatters the masts sprung the oars dashed out of the sailors hands the pilots seated on the deck clasping their knees with their hands instead of grasping the rudder bewailing the hopelessness of their situation with sharp cries and bitter lamentations neither sky nor sea clearly visible but all one deep and impenetrable darkness so that no one can see his neighbor whilst mighty is the roaring of the billows and monsters of the sea attack the crews on every side but how much further shall i pursue the unattainable for whatever image of our present evils i may seek speech shrinks baffled from the attempt nevertheless even when i look at these calamities i do not abandon the hope of better things considering as i do who the pilot is in all of this not one who gets the better of the storm by his art but calms the raging waters by his rod and if he does not effect this at the outset and speedily such is his custom he does not at the beginning put down these terrible evils but when they have increased and come to extremities and most persons are reduced to despair then he works wondrously and beyond all expectation thus manifesting his own power and training the patience of those who undergo these calamities do not therefore be cast down for there is only one thing olympias which is really terrible 
only one real trial and that is sin and i have never ceased continually harping upon this theme but as for all other things plots enmities frauds calumnies insults accusations confiscation exile the keen sword of the enemy the peril of the deep warfare of the whole world or anything else you like to name they are but idle tales for whatever the nature of these things may be they are transitory and perishable and operate in a mortal body without doing any injury to the vigilant soul therefore the blessed paul desiring to prove the insignificance both of the pleasures and sorrows relating to this life declared the whole truth in one sentence when he said for the things which are seen are temporal why then dost thou fear temporal things which pass away like the stream of a river for such is the nature of present things whether they be pleasant or painful and another prophet compared all human prosperity not to grass but to another material even more flimsy describing the whole of it as the flower of grass for he did not single out any one part of it as wealth alone or luxury alone or power or honour but having comprised all the things which are esteemed splendid amongst men under the one designation of glory he said all the glory of man is as the flower of grass nevertheless you will say adversity is a terrible thing and grievous to be borne yet look at it again compared with another image and then also learn to despise it for the railing and insults and reproaches and jibes inflicted by enemies and their plots are compared to a worn-out garment and moth-eaten wool when god says fear ye not the reproach of men neither be ye afraid of their revilings for they shall wax old as doth a garment and like a moth-eaten wool so shall they be consumed therefore let none of these things which are happening trouble thee but ceasing to invoke the aid of this or that person and to run after shadows for such are human alliances do thou persistently call upon jesus whom thou servest merely to bow his head and in a moment of time all these evils will be dissolved but if thou hast already called upon him and yet they have not been dissolved such is the manner of god's dealing for i will resume my former argument he does not put down evils at the outset but when they have grown to a head when scarcely any form of the enemy's malice remains ungratified then he suddenly converts all things to a state of tranquillity and conducts them to an unexpected settlement for he is not only able to turn as many things as we expect and hope to good but many more yea infinitely more wherefore also paul saith now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think could he not for example have prevented the three children at the outset from falling into trial but he did not choose to do this thereby conferring great pain upon them therefore he suffered them to be delivered into the hands of the barbarians and the furnace to be heated to an immeasurable height and the wrath of the king to blaze even more fiercely than the furnace and hands and feet to be bound with great severity and they themselves to be cast into the fire and then when all they who beheld despaired of their rescue suddenly and beyond all hope the wonder-working power of god the supreme artificer 
was displayed and shone forth with exceeding splendor for the fire was bound and the bondmen were released and the furnace became a temple of prayer a place of fountains and dew of higher dignity than a royal court and the very hairs of their head prevailed over that all-devouring element which gets the better even of iron and stone and masters every kind of substance and a solemn song of universal praise was instituted there by those holy men inviting every kind of created thing to join in the wondrous melody and they uttered hymns of thanksgiving to god for that they had been bound and also burnt as far at least as the malice of their enemies had power that they had been exiles from their country captives deprived of their liberty wandering outcasts from city and home sojourners in a strange and barbarous land for all this was the outpouring of a grateful heart and when the malicious devices of their enemies were perfected for what further could they attempt after their death and the labors of the heroes were completed and the garland of victory was woven and their rewards were prepared and nothing more was wanting for their renown then at last their calamities were brought to an end and the one who caused the furnace to be kindled and delivered them over to that great punishment became himself the panegyrist of those holy heroes of the herald of god's marvellous deed and everywhere throughout the world issued letters full of reverent praise recording what had taken place and becoming the faithful herald of the miracles wrought by the wonder-working god for inasmuch as he had been an enemy and adversary what he wrote was above suspicion even in the opinion of enemies thus thou see the abundance of resource belonging to god his extraordinary power his loving kindness and care be not therefore dismayed or troubled but continue to give thanks to god for all things praising and invoking him beseeching and supplicating even if countless tumults and troubles come upon thee even if tempests are stirred up before thine eyes let none of these things disturb thee for our master is not baffled by the difficulty even if all things are reduced to the extremity of ruin for it is possible for him to raise those who have fallen to convert those who are in error to set straight those who have been ensnared to release those who have been laden with countless sins and make them righteous to quicken those who are dead to restore lustre to decayed things and freshness to those who have waxen old for if he makes things which are not to come into being and bestows existence on things which are nowhere by any means manifest how much more will he rectify things which already exist concerning the statutes from homily eight knowing these things let us take heed to our life and let us not be earnest as to the goods that perish neither as to the glory that goeth out nor as to the body which groweth old nor as to that beauty which is fading nor as to that pleasure which is fleeting but let us expend all our care about the soul and let us provide for the welfare of this in every way for to cure the body when diseased is not an easy matter to every one but to cure a sick soul is easy to all and the sickness of the body requires medicine as well as money for its healing but the healing of the soul is a thing easy to procure and devoid of expense and the nature of the flesh is with much labor delivered from those wounds which are troublesome for very often the knife must be applied and medicines that are bitter 
but with respect to the soul there is nothing of this kind it suffices only to exercise the will and the desire and all things are accomplished and this hath been the work of god's providence inasmuch as from bodily sickness no great injury could arise for though we were not diseased yet death would in any case come and destroy and dissolve the body but everything depends upon the health of our souls this being by far the more precious and necessary he hath made the medicine of it easy and void of expense or pain what excuse therefore or what pardon shall we obtain if when the body is sick and money must be expended on its behalf the physicians called in and much anguish endured we make this so much a matter of our care though what might result from that sickness could be no great injury to us and yet treat the soul with neglect and this when we are neither called upon to pay down money nor to give others any trouble nor to sustain any sufferings but without any of all these things by only choosing and willing have it in our power to accomplish the entire amendment of it and knowing assuredly that if we fail to do this we shall sustain the extreme sentence and punishments and penalties which are inexorable for tell me if any one promised to teach thee the healing art in a short space of time without money or labor wouldst thou not think him a benefactor wouldst thou not submit both to do and to suffer all things whatsoever he who promised these things commanded behold now it is permitted thee without labor to find a medicine for wounds not of the body but of the soul and to restore it to a state of health without any suffering let us not be indifferent to the matter for pray what is the pain of laying aside anger against one who hath aggrieved thee it is a pain indeed to remember injuries and not to be reconciled what labor is it to pray and to ask for a thousand good things from god who is ready to give what labor is it not to speak evil of any one what difficulty is there in being delivered from envy and ill-will what trouble is it to love one's neighbor what suffering is it not to utter shameful words nor to revile nor to insult another what fatigue is it not to swear for again i return to this same admonition the labor of swearing is indeed exceedingly great oftentimes whilst under the influence of anger or wrath we have sworn perhaps that we would never be reconciled to those who have injured us i am now for the sixth day admonishing you in respect of this precept henceforth i am desirous to take leave of you meaning to abstain from the subject that ye may be on your guard there will no longer be any excuse or allowance for you for of right indeed if nothing had been said on this matter it ought to have been amended of yourselves for it is not a thing of an intricate nature or that requires great preparation but since ye have enjoyed the advantage of so much admonition and counsel what excuse will ye have to offer when ye stand accused before that dread tribunal and are required to give account of this transgression it is impossible to invent any excuse but of necessity you must either go hence amended or if you have not amended be punished and abide the extremest penalty thinking therefore upon all these things and departing hence with much anxiety about them exhort ye one another that the things spoken of during so many days may be kept with all watchfulness 
in your minds, so that whilst we are silent, ye instructing, edifying, exhorting one another, may exhibit great improvement, and having fulfilled all the other precepts, may enjoy eternal crowns, which God grant we may all obtain, through the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of section 18